All right, listeners, welcome to episode 61 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sipman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my friend Sam Edler-Bell. Hello, Matt. Sam, this episode we're about to share with listeners is one we didn't expect to record, mm-hmm. but it came together quickly because of the sad news that Barbara Ehrenreich died on September 1st at the age of 81. Barbara, of course, was the well-known left-wing writer, journalist, activist, who's probably most famous for her book, Nickel and Dimed, but also... In recent years, her papers with her former husband, John Ehrenreich, on the professional managerial class, PMC, became a major flashpoint in the discourse. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know something about Barbara Ehrenreich, but hopefully this this episode takes it a little deeper. Yeah, I've always been a huge fan of her work. I've read a bunch of her books. I reread some of them quickly when we decided we were going to do this episode and um, definitely the sort of PMC wars of the past couple of years, especially during the Bernie primary in 2019-2020, was really a big flashpoint on the left. That term is it's, it's sort of used as a, as a, a kind of term of abuse on the left. Uh, usually one PMC calls another PMC a PMC as if that precludes them from speaking about socialism or something. But also on the right, Aaron Reich's work has been sort of taken up in a usually quite dishonest and tendentious way, similarly to try to demonize like some kind of woke middle class elite, right? I think that in the course of this conversation, you'll hear that we dispel a lot of the misapprehensions about what she meant by that term and also how her theory about that term continued to inform her later books, even when they stopped being in a kind of explicitly Marxist idiom. And to have that conversation, we had two amazing guests. That's right. We had back on the show our friend Gabe Winant, who was on the show just a few months ago to talk about his great book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare. He writes for a lot of different publications, including N Plus One, where he wrote a great obituary about Barbara that was just published. And also our friend Alex Press, who's a staff writer at Jacobin, her labor reporting. I'm sure you've read it, but her work has also appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, Book Forum, among other places. And these were great guests in part because Gabe had recently gone through a lot of Aaron Reich's papers, her personal papers, which figures mightily in this conversation. And Alex, of course, did a, a well-read, well-regarded interview with Barbara for Dissent just uh, within the last couple of years. Yeah. About some of these topics. So they were people who knew Barbara's work extremely well and even knew her in a sense. Yeah. We sort of suspected that they would be the perfect guests for this episode, and then as the episode unfolded, I was, it became even more clear that Erin Reich's whole approach, her thinking, her writing, is is really, you can see it in the work of both of these brilliant writers today. Yes, and uh, as someone who came to the left later in life, this was the first time I really spent a lot of time with Erin Reich's work. And just for listeners, if you haven't done that, listen to this conversation and consider it. I found it a very moving in light of her death, especially experience, but also a very bracing one intellectually. Yeah. I was so impressed. And this conversation, I think, will give you a sense of why. I did want to mention one other thing before we get to housekeeping, which is that you should read Gabe's obituary of Barbara Ehrenreich in N Plus One for sure. We'll put it in the in the show notes. What you should not necessarily read is the obituary that ran in Compact Magazine for Barbara Ehrenreich under the title Scourge of the PMC, written by, I think, a fairly bad left-wing academic who misunderstands Barbara's work and I think quite offensively would have agreed to publish a sort of mistaken interpretation of her work in 
a right-wing populist magazine, which Barbara would have abhorred. So uh, <laughs> that's just to say another impulse that I had for trying to get this episode together was that I was so fucking mad when I saw that and felt that we needed to correct the record and we needed to honor her memory in a much more appropriate way, which I think we managed to do with these two guests. I agree. As we said, Gabe and Alex were great. And this conversation hopefully will be a, a rich and rewarding one. As always, we're grateful for our partners at Descent. Descent figures into this conversation. That's where Alex Press's great conversation interview with Barbara appeared just recently. That also will be in the show notes. So we're grateful for their support. And of course, one of the things they do for us is if you subscribe for $10 a month or more to Know Your Enemy on patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. And of course, for $5 a month, you also can hear all of our bonus episodes, of which uh, over the next few months, there'll be quite a few, I think. Yeah. As always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, and we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the show. All right. Shall we get to it? Yes. Here's our conversation about the late Barbara Ehrenreich. Enjoy. Right, Gabe Winant, welcome back to Know Your Enemy, and Alex Press, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, guys. We're really grateful that both of you agreed to join us for this conversation about the late Barbara Ehrenreich, who died September 1st, just a little over a week ago, at the age of 81. Both of you, uh, Alex, you did a great interview with Barbara for Descent not that long ago. Gabe, you just wrote a tribute to her in N Plus One. So both of you are very familiar with Barbara's work. Why don't we get started by you two telling us a little bit about her and her life and how you first encountered her work and encountered her? Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with a little kind of overview of her biography. Erin Reich, I think, became kind of a literary celebrity about 20 years ago with the publication of Nickel and Dimed, which you know, was her massive smash hit of all the many, many books she wrote although she wrote many before and after that, and others, you know, have been quite prominent. But it's really nickel and dime. That's how people kind of first met her. And just for listeners, that's where she went undercover, so to speak, as a minimum wage worker, right? Right. Sold millions of copies. Very often was assigned as like, you know, all incoming freshmen at at a college have to read it, like that kind of thing. (laughs) I remember I took, or I, I had to take a class called sociology in high school, which was weird because, I mean, before that point, it was just called like social studies, but basically it would just be like some kind of teacher like talking about current events and nobody would listen. And I remember that, <laughs> that teacher, the teacher of sociology, who was also like the track coach, assigned this book. And it was like the only thing I remember from the class because it blew me away, it blew a lot of people in the class away. Yeah, it's an amazing book. But, you know, it, it came, and I think this, for our purposes, is maybe a more interesting trajectory to situate it in. It came, you know, decades into a very eminent, prominent, left-wing intellectual career. Aaron Reich was born in 1941 in Butte, Montana, where her father was a copper miner, and her mother was a housewife. And, you know, her parents were kind of on the left of the New Deal Democrat, working class New Deal Democrat kind of thing. They were both quite militant atheists. Her dad really, you know, believed in the union, taught her to never cross picket line. But when she was still quite young, he pursued the chance to get higher education in the Butte School of Mines. I can't remember if he worked in the mines during the day and studied at night or vice versa, but he got a degree. Eventually, he got a PhD in metallurgy. 
and they moved out of Butte and moved all around the country uh, as he kind of moved from corporate job to corporate job. I think that background is important because class mobility is obviously going to be a quite important theme for her. Her mother also was a civil rights activist and actually traveled to the South during the civil rights movement. Erin Reich herself went to Reed College and then moved to New York to get a PhD in biology at Rockefeller University. And I think that's, a, again, a quite important part of her biography. She liked the science, is my sense of it, but she kind of hated the professional apparatus surrounding the science. You know, she'd write letters home about what an asshole her advisor is and this kind of thing. And, um, <laughs> you know, she got left in charge of the lab one time, I remember. And, you know, she said, I'm not really able to, like, force the other graduate students to produce on schedule the way I'm supposed to do. <laughs> um, you know, she really delighted in kind of offending the sensibilities of, you know, this almost entirely male profession and so on. And, you know, this is by, by the time she's at this job, it's the mid to late 60s. She's getting swept up in the feminist movement, in the anti-war movement, in the new left more generally, which seems increasingly at odds with like this, you know, stultifying bureaucracy of an academic career. So she basically exits that and enters a professional life in the new left in various ways right around the end of the 1960s that will then take her in different forms, you know, through much of the rest of her life. She married her lab mate, John Ehrenreich, and he, I think, was going through a relatively similar political experience to her, so that's where she got the name, and they both kind of exited science together. He worked for a while as an organizer for uh, Local 1199, the Healthcare Workers Union, but he left that job because he had some, my sense is he had some friction with union leadership, which he thought was too kind of economistic and not focused enough on you know, the dehumanizing qualities of the healthcare system. She worked for the city of New York for a while in the budget office. And then they both again worked together for a new left organization called Health Pack, which was a kind of like radical health research and study and organizing kind of operation. And then in the early 70s, also, she got a job at SUNY Old Westbury, which was doing a ton of like hiring young new left academics, where she mm -hmm. co-taught a couple of classes with Deirdre English on women and health that then led to a series of books on kind of health knowledge, medical science, and gender and patriarchy. And she also joined the New American Movement, uh, as did John, which was a kind of new left post-SDS organization. SDS had split up at the end of the 60s very acrimoniously. And the New American Movement was an effort to think about what had happened and to recompose some of those political energies going forward. The New American Movement in the early 80s would merge with the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee to form today's DSA. So that brings her across much of the 70s. I mean, and obviously that kind of encounter with NAM and the New Left is very important for the term that everyone is counting down to us mentioning, the professional managerial class, <laughs> and how she and John theorized that in the 1970s. And we'll get back to that. But before we go there, I'd love to hear from Alex how you encountered Barbara's work. You've interviewed her, so you, you knew her personally somewhat. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from you. I mean, first, I'll just say that looking at that kind of through line that Gabe laid out in her biography, I just want to underline the importance of the women's health movement in sort of what we go forward with as far as her theoretical work and what she did. You know, Barbara emphasized that for a woman, her occupation wasn't enough to consider when thinking about what part of the class system she's in, you know, she's also experiencing life as a woman. And for Barbara, you know, she had experiences with the healthcare system, even though she was a PhD'd professional who had health knowledge herself. She had negative experiences with the health industry that I think 
were a big part of her understanding of kind of how to theorize around class relations as well as like concepts she would move forward with. Health Pack, for example, this era where I'm jumping ahead to the PMC stuff, but this sort of sense of one thing professionals in the health industries could do would be to sort of advocate for more, say, democratic control over the health system or community control. And that was an era, especially in New York City, where that was going on a lot, right? There was this, these constant debates around the siting of health clinics, the, the price of health services, and Barbara was very much a part of that. When I first came to Barbara Ehrenreich, I didn't know any of that history. And now I think it really kind of situates what her project was as far as like this democratic sensibility that she had um, about people you know, being able to tell their own stories or make decisions not only over like the, say, the means of production, but the means of their community's reproduction um, itself. As far as when I encountered Ehrenreich, it wasn't till quite late. I don't think I read her in college. I don't think I was aware of her. I was not a particularly well-read person in general um, until I began writing myself. So I think I had already started being a labor journalist when I finally picked up some Ehrenreich, and I think it was Nickel and Dime that I first read. And of course, unsurprisingly, I found it incredibly enlightening in that I was sort of already doing much of or hoping to do in the future the sort of thing Ehrenreich does. You know, how do you give people a platform as far as telling their stories of not just wage and hour complaints on the shop floor, but also a deeper interest in working class life writ large, right? I think these questions of dignity come up again and again in Aaron Reich's work. You know, that dignity is both central for mass movements as well as it's right. precisely what's denied to the worker in the American workplace, right? And that that's actually a key obstacle for organizing. And so when I read Nickel and Dimed, you know, I think I read a lot of her other essays after that, of course, I then was forced in a way to, to understand Ehrenreich a lot more during the 2016 and afterward um, debates, the sort of use and misuse of the concept of the professional managerial class. When people started throwing that around on the internet and in pieces and essays, I went back and read those two essays in Radical America, as well as the one where her and John Ehrenreich reunited to write about the state of the PMC in 2013, 2014. And that is what led to me speaking to her in that interview for Dissent. Um, and I actually pulled up the emails because, you know, this was sort of a humiliating experience. Imagine calling up Barbara Ehrenreich and telling her like about some tweets. <laughs> Just mortifying. <laughs> like, I know you have better things to do, but we really need to talk. And so it actually wasn't me who first broke this news. It was Natasha Lewis at Descent, one of the editors there, who in 2019, she wrote to Barbara and said, as you might be aware, your PMC concept has been taken up widely in recent debates about the Democratic primary. Would you be interested in revisiting its concept and its evolution? And then... Tosh and I send her Gabe's essay that he published in N plus one on this topic right around that time in 2019, I think. And then we, you know, set up a call and Barbara, she was just incredibly generous. And also, you know, I think in a way that's characteristic of all of her work, self-critical um, and honest. You know, she refers to herself as vain. She says she agreed to, to co-chair DSA out of vanity. Um, <laughs> and because her and Michael Harrington had a long standing disagreements. I mean, they were both sort of these, these very well known left leaning intellectuals, right, of different levels of socialist thinking between Harrington and Ehrenreich. And so she was being asked to sort of be a part of this project where they would be 
sort of co-chairs and it would be their organization. Um, and she agreed to do that. And that is a legacy that obviously now with the rebirth of DSA is quite relevant to a lot of people. But I just found her incredibly, all of her work, this sense of humility. And also you get this constant sense that she understands that she is being heard rather than say other people, working class people, basically because of circumstance and chance, right? Her dad happened to get that education from the minor school and thus began this process of class mobility for her. But as she says, I think in that interview of her then husband, who was a teamster, a truck driver, she says, you know, he's the real intellectual. Like there's this real seriousness about kind of an understanding of the complicated, nuanced sense of what working class people are like versus the professional managerial class, the sense that every individual has something to say. You also see this in Nickel and Dimed, I think, really clearly, where she says, you know, if if educated people think that they're the ones that are funny or brilliant, they should probably have a broader circle of friends. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that moment, Alex, speaking of uh, the moment where Nam folds into DSA and she has to work with Michael Harrington. You say, can you talk about those years? And she responds with a certain amount of ambivalence and regret. (laughs) And then she goes on to talk about it. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, ambivalence, regret, like self-criticism, these are all kind of hallmarks of Ehrenreich's writing in a way that really brings you in, right? There's no self-promoting going on. Barbara's always Mm. saying, I'm just like you. And that's what kind of compels you to keep reading. I mean, that's what I find in her work. She uses herself as the stand-in for the reader in a way that I think a lot of people try, but don't quite succeed with the sense of humor and um, kind of humility that Aaron Reich's writing is characterized by. Yeah. Alex, you mentioned the importance of dignity in her work, but also the agency of working class people. How would you describe her approach to letting people speak for themselves, if that makes sense, or giving them a platform. And she went on to start an organization to help people from the working class write, correct? Yeah, the Economic Justice uh, Hardship Reporting Project, which, you know, there's this quote that's been going around since her death about how Barbara said, in this country, only the rich can afford to write about the poor. And this Uh really was an outrage to her. Um, And so that project was her attempt, I think, within the sphere of media, which was just one front on which, of course, Barbara was working, to sort of rectify that and provide working class people with the kind of funding that they would need to be able to write these stories. Because the basic assumption here is that, of course, as many socialists believe that like working class people know best about their struggles and how what would be need to be fixed, both in the workplace and in the broader political sense. Um, and so the fact that they aren't heard is an issue, right, that allows people to to believe that they don't have anything to say. And so that was what Barbara was trying to do. And that project continues without her. And so, yes, that's definitely one front of of this broader approach she had, which was not just caring about working class people in some paternalistic sense, but genuinely being sort of outraged um, at the idea that that one class is heard while another isn't. And Gabe, you've gone through many of her letters. When something like Nickel and Dime is published, did working people write to her? Yeah. What Alex was saying a moment ago about her reticence, let's say, uh, or her you know, ambivalence about her own position, that became very clear to me in a certain way, just trying to get her permission to go through her letters. Mm-hmm. And part of my own self-appointed role as like protector of Barbara's legacy or whatever it is that I'm trying to do um, has to do with like, I really, you know, I really had to kind of work my connections. I, you know, I went to a friend who went to a friend who went to a friend who went to Fran Piven, who went to Barbara Ehrenreich to get her permission <laughs> um, to look at those letters, which led to an, er- an email from Ehrenreich to me saying, okay, fine, whatever, basically. I mean, that was sort of, it was like one line, that was the tone of it. Um, 
And I, I printed it out and brought it to the archive. And they said, well, that's the best anyone's gotten so far. So, you know, I guess you can go in. Um, wow. And I think she was sort of weirded out by my interest in her in a way that I, you know, really respected. Although, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to kind of be connected to her in a way that I think she was re- understandably reluctant to do. And then I had this amazing moment, you know, recently I revisited her book, Living with a Wild God, which is kind of a memoir. And I hadn't read, you know, in a long time. And I had forgotten that it begins with a scene of her collecting her papers to deposit them in the archive and how stupid she thinks it is that she's doing this at some level. Because why would a future, <laughs> she says, why would a future graduate student, you know, be interested in this? And she thinks that's kind of sort of silly. But I do feel this connection to her as a result of that. And those archives are full, as, you, as you're asking, Matt, of communications from people who read her work and were moved by it in one way or another. I mean, I didn't, read every single one of the thousands of letters in there. But I did pull up just to share, if that's okay, a couple of letters that I think are particularly compelling. Sure. So here is one in response to Nickel and Dimed. Dear Barbara Ehrenreich, after reading your book, Nickel and Dimed, I felt compelled to write to you. I am one of the lower class working people that you wrote about. No, that's not quite accurate. I'm trying to be one. I'm a 45 year old, recently divorced, displaced homemaker. I have 20 years experience in taking care of my husband, ex-husband and son, but have no job skills. That means minimum wage jobs, even with an associate's degree. I have an even bigger strike against me. I'm also handicapped. I have a degenerative disease in my knees, which makes standing for eight hours an impossibility. I would love to be a maid or a waitress or even a Walmartian. These are the jobs that she, she works in Nickel and Dunt. But I can't seem to get anyone to hire me. The most recent job that I have had was seven months ago. I was working in a nearby town as a telemarketer, but they kept cutting our hours down until we worked for one to two hours a day, and it cost me an hour's pay and gas to get there. So I quit and went in search of something better, and my search continues. I've been living off of credit cards, but they are maxed out now. I have been everywhere for assistance, but all I keep hearing is that I don't fit any of their programs. I fall through the cracks, as one social worker put it. Several years ago, I drew SSI disability until my mother died and left me a little money. Now Social Security tells me that I no longer qualify, even though my knees are worse and I now have emphysema. I don't know what people in my situation are expected to do in order to survive. I just want to be able to pay my utility bills and buy a few groceries and maybe get a telephone again. I don't need luxuries, just necessities. I was amazed that someone like you, educated, financially secure, would want to see how the other half lived. No, not see, actually become, all caps, one of us. Living day to day, check to check. It's not much fun, is it? But you had one thing that I don't have, an out. There is only one out for me. Anyway, I've taken enough of your time. I just wanted you to know that I did thoroughly enjoy your book. It made me feel a little better about myself, that maybe I'm not such a failure, but maybe our society and the powers that be is. That's incredible. Uh, There's also a letter I wanted to share on uh, which is midwives and and nurses, which was 1972 or three, co-authored with Deirdre English, uh, you know, in this kind of women's health movement moment. This is handwritten, so I might stumble from a certain moment as I read. Dear sisters, I just finished the pamphlet, which is midwives and nurses. It fills me with such rage, my body is quivering and my stomach hurts. I'm a third year RN student, a feminist, and have casually guessed the truth of what you state, but can't handle the rage it makes me feel. My thoughts and pains are very trapped in my head, seldom spoken and seldom written on paper, never having been in access to something involved, sorry. Anyway, it sort of goes on like that from there. But that, that beginning is, is the thing in particular that I wanted to share. The, the way that these books, because they are so personal in their quality, the resonance that they produce is extremely powerful. There's kind of two ways to ask this question, because in some ways, everything that we've already said really sets up why 
the interrogation of the professional managerial class becomes so important for her that it's sort of her class position, although ambivalently so. And she clearly, from the things that we've already said, had the sense that you have kind of some kind of obligation, ethical, and to sort of some kind of concept of authenticity to look very closely at where you came from and why you are what you are and why you do what you do. So I think listeners are already prepared for 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 that kind of turn in the conversation. But also, Gabe, I'm just thinking about all of the work of yours that I've read and why it would be that you would desire to have such a close connection with her and feel such a close connection with her. And it seems like this kind of theorizing of a professional middle strata in 20th century capitalism is so important to your work. And so my question, Gabe, is, you know, how would you sort of describe that draw to her work for you and your work? And also, if that can get us to discussing her important theorizing of the PMC, that would be good too. So for me, it really came from two directions, which were connected in ways that took me a long time to understand. One was intellectual, which was that less than the PMC thing itself, Aaron Reich was someone who was interested in gender and labor, in particular in the healthcare industry. Right. And through the whole first half of the 70s, she is writing a ton about nurses in particular that's connected to that book, which is Midwives, Nurses. It's kind of nurses are, occupy this position where they have a certain kind of professional status and standing, but they're also clearly connected to kind of more classically proletarian experience in certain ways. Right. A gender is really important in structuring their work in obvious ways. And so Aaron Wright had, develops this analysis in the early 70s of how nurses are really politically important. And I was working on this book, which I've talked about recently on, on the podcast, about uh, the healthcare industry, the transition from manufacturing to healthcare, you know, the kind of strategic possibilities that it might open up for working class formation. So that was what initially kind of drew me to her when I realized that behind the Aaron Reich I knew of Nickel and Dime and Fear of Falling and these kind of more famous books, further back in time was this scholar and activist in the world of like healthcare labor. Mm. And she was like on the lecture tour in the early 70s, going and talking to nurses organizations, nursing schools and this kind of thing. I think her degree in biology actually in a certain way helped get her in the door in some in, in some respects. So that that was one thing that kind of drew me toward her and her work, sense that she might help me understand some of that. And then separately, I was really involved in my graduate student union. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a very common story for versions of this are very common for like why young socialists in our generation got into Aaron Reich over the last you know, 10, 15 years, whatever, because she had something to say about the proletarianization of professionals, right? And this is kind of more squarely the PMC discussion, but that she was engaged with those kinds of issues. And so I was sort of like feeling out both those sides of her, not 100% putting them together for myself yet. My friend Max Frazier was editing an issue of the academic journal Labor and asked me if I wanted to do a contribution on a labor writer. And I suggested Aaron Reich. And that was what kind of set me down the path in a direct way. But, you know, then once I was in it, I started to realize like all of these kind of deeper and more intense resonances, both between those two sides of what drew me to her mm. and between myself and my biography and and her and her trajectory to the point that I have to say, I, I was way whether or not I was going to say this, but as I was going through Aaron Reich's letters, I found a note congratulating her on the publication of Witches, Midwives, and Nurses from my dad. 
Uh, <laughs> wow. Because, because wow. my dad uh, lived in Long Island in the early – my dad was in the new left. You know, He was in the same kind of political trajectory basically. He lived in Long Island in the early 70s. So he like had met her at a couple of parties or whatever. I don't know exactly. It was not like a substantive note. It was just like, hey, Barbara, congrats on the book. Can't wait to read it. But you know, oh encountering my, my dad in the archive, I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Like there is something going on here, right, that has led me to kind of retrace the steps all the way back to here. You know, and also I'll say while I'm on the topic, you know, my mom like really came out of the women's health movement. And it was super formative for her. And that remained the kind of area of her work for her whole career. So in that moment, I realized that actually all these different things I was doing in, in one way or another, I was trying to negotiate somehow with the legacies of the new left and what it meant for socialist or left wing politics in our own moment and what of it we can kind of extract something from and kind of continue to try to make good on what of it we have to transform what of it we want to jettison Aaron Reich became a way for me to try to think a lot of that through yeah and i just want to echo gabe here that i too my first experience with the labor movement was starting a graduate student union at the place where i was getting a phd in sociology in boston and so i think it's not a coincidence that you know both gabe and i are precisely in different parts of it the same kind of type of the disintegration of the professional managerial class that her and, and John write about, especially in that follow-up in 2013, where they talk about like the challenges that will be posed to the capitalist class by the downwardly mobile fragment of the PMC, you know, will come from these people who kind of had this educational experience and then are either in debt or otherwise in fields where the living conditions no longer match the promises or the ethos um, and and there's sense of anger or sort of like a, a we have to carry out this justice that we've sort of been educated to believe in. Um, mm. And so I think, yeah, the fact that, you know, I came to Aaron Reich's work as someone who was, you know, a dropping out of a PhD program after trying to organize a union uh, <laughs> and Gabe's own biography, which is somewhat different, but not that different, um, I think is is exactly sort of what Aaron Reich laid out as would happen. Um, in her essays. That's so interesting. You know, I want to keep us on the PMC stuff for a while uh, that Sam kind of mentioned earlier and that we're getting into. And one of the things, maybe one way to ask this, and Alex, maybe you can take this up since you interviewed Barbara kind of about the controversy <laughs> that emerged over the PMC. It's interesting. I hadn't read the original 1977 articles until preparing for this episode. And so I had the experience of the controversy coming first and then reading these essays and thinking, this is what, you know, everyone's <laughs> yes. yelling about. And I can only imagine if I had read them first before the controversy, I would have been more outraged as it unfolded. Could you just tell us about those uh, 1977 essays, kind of where it all started, just for listeners who aren't familiar with them? And, and then maybe we can wind our way, you know, towards some of the controversies. Sure. So those two essays are published in Radical America in 1977. And as Gabe alluded to, they're coming from this experience of conflict within the new left, right? SDS is engaged in these immense internal struggles about how to think of themselves uh -huh. and the broader new left in general, especially in the United States, though also in France, especially, is engaged in these debates where on the one side, there's this thinking that, you know, students public college students, um, the sort of new radicals of, of that era, are part of what, what Andre Gores calls the new working class, right? They are the working class. They have to sell their labor for a wage. So, you know, in this traditional Marxian sense, you know, they're working class. And so thus they can be at the vanguard of these movements. And there's this confusion because if that's the case, then why isn't there 
kind of rebellion and they're organizing having the effect that, you know, Marxists would think of as when the working class is kind of engaged in a mass uprising, you know, it would, it would stop the system, right? It would slow everything down and, and create a huge threat. That's not really happening in the late 70s. People are realizing that didn't happen. There's another side that sort of fully dismisses the student radicals, right? It says, this is the petty bourgeois, this is juvenile, and what we really need to do is proletarianize ourselves by, say, dropping out of the university or quitting our our professional jobs, and we need to, you know, go into the factories, right? So you take jobs as truck drivers, or you take jobs in the factories. And there were people who did that, you know, that was sort of the Trotskyist mode of operating in that era. And so the Ehrenreichs are looking at this, and they're saying something's being missed here. Neither of these is quite correct. And so they sort of start formulating an understanding of what that strata really is, right? Who were these student radicals who definitely have to sell their labor to survive, and yet are clearly in very important ways distinct from what we might think of as the traditional working class. Hmm. They're culturally different. Their politics are different. They're sort of having trouble being understood. They can't build this alliance between the workers and themselves. Clearly, there's a gap there. And so that's really what they're trying to do. And to be clear, the Ehrenreichs are a part of this milieu, right? It's an intervention into their own organizations and saying, right. you know what, we actually have some clarity here. We, this is what we think is going on. So that's sort of the backdrop of the, the essays and the concept. Gabe, do you have anything to add about that, that context? You summarize that very, very well, Alex. I think the thing that I think particularly allows the Ehrenreichs to make this intervention is an analysis of the process and phenomenon of proletarianization as it's being studied by a kind of new generation of Marxists on the new left in this moment, whether that's, you know, in labor history, which they read a ton of, and were very in touch with the tradition following E.P. Thompson's book, The Making of the English Working Class, which Alex and I did a whole other podcast on. These historians really kind of follow in Thompson's footsteps to try to demonstrate that in the 19th century, there had been a layer of skilled artisans who had their own kind of culture that held them somewhat apart from the rest of the working class and who had control over the process of production in a lot of substantive ways and who were the source of a lot of working class radicalism mm. and who, who were then destroyed by the rise of monopoly capitalism, mass production, manufacturing, scientific management, the assembly line in a process documented by lots of scholars, most significantly maybe Harry Braverman. This was the kind of heart of the story told by American labor history, which was going through this renaissance in the 70s. Hmm. And they looked at that and said, okay, so what that means is that capitalism periodically both throws up and then crushes back down these kind of strata that are distinct from the rest of the working class and which in the process throw up new forms of radical politics. And the question then becomes how to kind of negotiate the common ground and deal with the difficulties and forms of separation between that radicalism and the politics of other elements of the working class. Right. The negotiation of that process was kind of the story that was generally told about the trajectory of the Socialist Party and the IWW to the Communist Party in the early 20th century. Hmm. And Harry Braverman, who wrote an extraordinary book, All Marxists Should Read, Everyone on the Left Should Read, Labor and Monopoly Capital. He was a, had been a metal worker in Youngstown. He was an editor at, the, at Monthly Review. And this book is a kind of systematic account of why capitalism requires the de-skilling of labor 
you know, new forms of skill are generated, but they always then get de-skilled. And he had been critical in particular for Ehrenreich's career and for helping her get published. And when he died in 1976, one thing I found in her archive was that she gave a eulogy at his funeral. So that connection, I think, is also very helpful in understanding what they're doing in that argument. Right. That might be starting to make a bit of sense for, for listeners. But if you could just you know, define the professional managerial class as they do, and if you want, relate its role in relation to the existing working class in the same way that Braverman might have related this sort of skilled artisan to the working class that was overcome by the rise of monopoly capitalism. So for the Ehrenreichs, the professional managerial class itself arises from that same process in the early 20th century, the rise of monopoly capitalism. That's to say, capitalism conducted through very large consolidated firms operating in coordinated markets, as opposed to the kind of entrepreneurial chaos of the 19th century. And a capitalism that operates that way is going to require a kind of dense and complex set of middle layers to operate its bureaucracies. Right. Its bureaucracies of management inside the firm, its bureaucracies of social control outside the firm in everyday life. And so for this purpose, generates this new class, a professional managerial class, who, although they're not in charge of the society as a whole, right, they're not the ruling class, they do kind of do the everyday work of social control. Mm. And that's doctors, lawyers, teachers, nurses, social workers, entertainers. And they actually, this is something I think we often forget, is that the Aaron Reichs had an analysis of how one thing monopoly capital does is commodify entertainment, right? right? It generates the culture industries to replace the, the older forms of pleasure that existed and entertainment that existed kind of like in proletarian ghettos. Right. Right now you're going to get sold entertainment. And so if they consider entertainers and members of the culture industry and writers and journalists also to be part of this. It's individualized forms of entertainment. Right. You buy the record, you sit in front of the TV, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's this new layer, which is distinguished typically by its kind of credentialed expertise, which is carrying out these functions of social control. But because, as Alex was saying, they are also themselves workers and they are also themselves subject to de-skilling and the degradation of their work in the same way that everyone else who's a worker is. They are structurally going to be inserted into social conflict and antagonism, not just with those below them, although that, that happens and is important, right, that they're in, in antagonism with, you know, the classic proletariat, but they're also structurally going to be in antagonism with those above them. Oh, I want to just stop right here for a second to uh, explain the term de-skilling for the listeners. It's really important for understanding this whole conversation. But what it means is in the industrial context, it's the process by which skilled labor is eliminated, usually by you know a further division of labor and the introduction of new technologies and a sort of tailorist model of, of the factory floor. And the, the important thing is that there's an analogy to de-skilling taking place in industrial work to the de-skilling that starts to take place for professionals in the middle of the century, which is that they too are experiencing this downward pressure. Their form of skilled professional labor undergoes a comparable de-skilling. So as the Ehrenreichs write in their update on the professional managerial class from 2013, professionals, quote, at the less fortunate end of the spectrum, like journalists and PhDs in sociology or literature, spiral down into the retail workforce. They themselves can't afford to you know, go to graduate school or get a job, or they, or they can't manage to get a job in the university. And then above them, healthcare workers and lawyers and professors find that their work is more and more hemmed in and, quote, regulated by corporation-like enterprises. So that's the de-skilling that's taking place for the PMC. And their analysis was that 
the huge expansion of this class generated by the post-war boom and the expansion of the universities had basically been a rebellion along that upward-looking axis, like professionals or future professionals resisting the meaninglessness of their work as they kind of exit from, you know, the public colleges and are absorbed into corporate America, resisting against that. And, you know, if you ever like listen to Mario Savio's speech, his famous speech, you know, at, at Sproul Hall. Laying your body on the gears. That's exactly what he's describing, right? Like, we don't want to be raw materials. We're human beings. We have to shut down this odious machine. And so that's their analysis of what the 60s were at some level. I mean, obviously, there's more to it than that, but that's the kind of basic sociology of it for them. And it's also then the account of why SDS doesn't become a mass working class movement, because it's in this middle position, which they say in Marx's Real Progress, that members of the new left became able to recognize this problem. That's the first time that sort of happened in the tradition and history of 20th century middle class radicalism. But recognition was not sufficient to surmount it. You know, one thing I did want to ask, Alex, maybe you can start, because it's in your interview with her. A line that stood out to me was that these pair of essays from 1977 in Radical America, Barbara says that we wrote that essay in a rather tedious way to try to not offend the Marxists. (laughs) What did she mean by that? That's a good question, uh, what she means by that. I mean, (laughs) she's dealing with this a lot. She also has this great essay about what is socialist feminism, And it's sort of similarly tediously written to sort of say, here's what the mechanical Marxists, is what she calls them, think. Here's what sort of the a certain strain of feminism thinks. Here's how these things are connected. Um, And she's trying, I mean, the Ehrenreich is constantly trying to bring people together, right? It sounds like a really pat way of saying things. Mm -hmm. But she says that even in that interview, you know, I thought we all had to get along. Yeah, she says that over and over again. Yes. And she really, you know, because I mean, what they're trying to do is say, how can the PMC bring themselves in alliance with the working class? And so the sense that we actually all have to get along actually is a political stance that really guides a lot of her work. But I mean, that essay in the so in the Radical America essays in the first one where they're really laying out the theory, you know, they're talking about the fact that this is not like a necessarily a renunciation of Marxist analysis, but in fact, like building upon it. Right. So this is why the role of monopoly capitalism, which, of course, is something Braverman really wrote a lot about. So their connection there is really important. It's why they're laying out, okay, monopoly capitalism does create this new strata of sorts, and they're laying out exactly in what way sort of the PMC is in fact about expropriating working class culture and then bringing commodities into that culture instead, you know, instead of the sort of what they say is indigenous culture to the working class. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the essay is tedious. I don't know if Gabe has more thoughts about what they were trying to do, (laughs) Um, but I think they really didn't want to be seen as, I mean, as we'll see when we talk about how the term is being used now, I think they wanted to to lay out the contradictions within this class and within their own position without sort of finding themselves on one side or the other of this divide within the new left at the time, because they thought both had a kernel of truth, but also were incorrect, right? So you kind of have to tediously lay out what you're taking from each side. Right. And there's an amazing moment in your interview where she's describing the response, the internal response to the essay within Nam. <laughs> where there's a person that she describes as now a, quote, prominent centrist pundit 
who told her after the essay came out that she had, quote, done more than anybody to destroy the possibility of revolutionary socialism. <laughs> now, now, there are two things about that. First of all is, who is that? I know who that is. Let me just say, I, I'm not going to say. You're not going to say? You can't say? I, well, I'm not 100% sure. Okay. I, just, I have a very good guess. We'll offer a very hedged guess in a moment. But the other, the other <laughs> thing about that is that you realize that it was interpreted at least by people like this guy as foreclosing the possibility of a collaboration between the PMC and the working class. And that's why it was dangerous, which is exactly, Alex, what you were saying that it was trying to avoid. But Gabe, I don't know how much we have to distantiate and hedge here to bring your, your guess. All right. Well, I'm just, I don't know that this is true. We love a little, a little speculation and gossip on here, that's, Gabe. That's very <laughs> kosher to know your enemy to bring in what we would describe as, as gossip which is, as Matt often says, not so far away from philosophy. All right. Well, it seems to me like it's got to be John Judas. Ah, because he was in Nam. Uh, yeah. Uh, Fascinating. The first biographer of William F. Buckley Jr., <laughs> among other things. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting that he is now someone who has a, I don't think he would disagree with my description of this view, a very kind of strong view that like woke liberalism is causing Democrats to alienate the working class right. and like what they wow. need to do is move to the right on the culture war. Right. I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, so much of the kind of problem or the the work of the PMC is to sort of talk about themselves and kind of be kind of touchy about what they're doing. Um, yeah. And so it's incredible that people were very offended by this because, you know, the, the Aaron Reich's layout, this is a relation of control. You know, the social worker does not meet her patient in a relation of equality, mm -hmm. but in fact, as an antagonistic one, right? And this is the same thing for mm -hmm. the teacher with the student or the student's parent. They can be in solidarity. And in fact, I think a lot of the stuff that's worth talking about now is, say, teachers who who organize around community demands. This is an example of what it would look like to sort of undo the PMC's antagonism um, right. and its role. So that is, of course, a lot of you know what I write about and what Gabe writes about as well. But there's really this sense that just by labeling it as a sense of control or antagonism or that you are not really a worker, that you have, in fact, denied the possibility of agency in whatever sense that would mm. be kind of building towards a socialist goal. Right. And people really rejected that because if they're not the agents of history, you know, you've really you've really <laughs> done a number on their whole project. Well, I think this maybe is a way to get into a question that I have because, well, I mean, one thing about that that reminds me of is just that. Aaron Reich's kind of vigilance about the fact that one should not deny their own subject position and their position in class society, and that it may be even like a feature of middle class ideology in the 20th century to do so, and that that she rejects over and over again in her work, and that sort of demonstrates how it produces all of these ideological myst mystifications when people who are professionals, especially in the media or whatever, sort of imagine themselves as like the unparochial, the kind of universal, they have this capacity to see things clearly in a way that other classes do not. But I think maybe maybe the question that I have right now is getting right down into that tension of both the role that the PMC is assigned by capital, the social disciplinary role, and then what is it about their class experience that creates the possibility of something other than compliance with the obligations of that role. Because I think both sides of the coin are maybe underdeveloped. Like, like what exactly is, from the standpoint of capital, exactly what the PMC is supposed to do. But then mm -hmm. also even maybe more underdeveloped is like, how would it be that they would not? What is the kind of 
resources of their class experience on which they could be resistive instead and ally themselves with the working class, as opposed to simply deny their class experience and proletarianize or become sort of uncomplicated foot soldiers of, of capital and control. I'm sorry to insert another Marxist theorist into this conversation. Oh, but boy. Think, Gabe, we know what we're getting when you, we invite <laughs> you on the pod. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think here it's important to introduce Gramsci into the conversation, <laughs> who, again, is a super major influence on the New Left generally, on the New American movement in particular, on Radical America in particular, and on the Arab Reichs in particular. And I don't want to go down a big Gramsci tangent, but like the basic thrust of Gramsci's account of hegemony in modern Western liberal democracies and what differentiated them from Russia in particular is that he says in Russia, civil society was underdeveloped and that made the state vulnerable and kind of brittle. Whereas in the West, there's a kind of rich layer of sort of civil society musculature around the skeleton of the state which means that you can't just kind of like swarm the Winter Palace the way you could do in Petrograd. And for that reason, instead, what left-wing activity has to involve is contestation of civil society, because civil society is where the ruling class establishes its hegemony over the classes that it rules through education, through the culture industries, through the provision of social goods like welfare and healthcare. Those are the things that make the state and the ruling class protected against kind of insurrection in the way that happened in Russia. And so the Ehrenreichs recognize that the civil society that Gramsci is talking about is the set of basically industries and organizations in which the PMC works, right? The school systems, the culture industries, the universities, the healthcare system, the welfare agency, the press, and so on. So they then are able to argue, if you work in these settings, you are carrying out the function of hegemony, regardless of what you particularly think about it or what you, you know, the little ways you're subverting it or, you know, not everything a teacher says produces the student as a docile future worker, but the net total result of education and capitalist society, right, is to produce the student as a future docile worker. At the same time, that creates an opportunity, right? Because if we believe that there are things happening in this layer of civil society in the places where the PMC works, that might also infringe on the kind of dignity and autonomy that professionals have at work. Mm. And in fact, such things are bound to exist because to stick with the teacher example, right? Like you're going to get pressure on teachers, as we have seen very clearly, uh, just test the students more, make them memorize, keep them in line, forget this art and music shit, whatever it might be, right? right. So whatever thing led teach a teacher into that line of work are going to be frustrated both in terms of the kind of meaning they might assign to it and also in terms of their workload, right? Bigger classes, more homework to grade, whatever. And so there's always an opportunity exactly because civil society is differentiated partly from capital itself in a lot of ways, which is what makes it the site of hegemony. There's always an opportunity for members of the PMC to be radicalized around their job functions. Mm. Um, And the meaning that they may invest in those job functions or just even the kind of economic aspirations for security that they thought went with those jobs, but which they often find are kind of snatched away from them. And this is especially the story of, I think, the PMC in the last few decades. Right. The career is, is disintegrating across all of these areas. And so it's that kind of experience, I think, or set of experiences and contradictions that 
both makes it possible to have such a thing as PMC like rebellion or resistance, and also makes it strategically potentially powerful. Because as Alex was saying a minute ago, the capitalist class can't count on the schools and the welfare systems and the universities and the press and the culture industries to actually carry out their hegemonic function because they've lost control of the shop floor in those places. Then the overall relationship of hegemony between the classes is going to break down. Hmm. And there's just to build on what Gabe was saying, there's a good line in that first PMC essay by the Ehrenreichs where they say, you know, they're describing that that the PMC mediates class conflict, right? That that's their role in the social division of labor. Um, that's their function. And they say professionals are more effective than Pinkertons, which I think is basically, you know, what, what they're saying. Yes. Both It's sort of this contradictory position. On the one hand, a professional needs this autonomy. You know, you a, a professional, whether a teacher or a social worker, has to, to do their job well, be given some level of freedom that then gives them certain ideas about the importance of themselves and the sort of righteousness of what they do. But on the flip side, it can create a difficulty in controlling them and then can get rescinded as, say, you know, the Aaron Reichs write about in their follow-up, you know, the onset of neoliberalism, where people, the bottom starts falling out for these right. people. And so these ideas that have been very much developed by dint of what they do for the state and for the reproduction of the capitalist system, then is sort of being turned against itself, right? And so you get these very outspoken and confident, you know, say, union organizing drives in white collar workplaces, because these people who've been taught that they actually can give a sort of technocratic or rationalizing role that is above and beyond kind of what management or people stuck dealing with corporate motives has to deal with. You know, they're like, we're the good, rational, liberal service people, and we're not being allowed to do our job. And so that's why you see those people then moving into, um, whether it's the progressive movement or then early socialist movement in America through the new left and now today. That's that right. kind of contradictory position they're in. Right. My question is, the moment in which the Ehrenreichs are writing these pieces about the PMC in the 1970s is sort of suggesting that like, there's a reason that the new left hasn't worked. It's because we haven't looked closely enough at the contradictory role of this strata of professional. There's a possibility if we take it very seriously and we go not around but through that contradiction for this sort of revolutionary consciousness and, and sort of cross alliance with the working class to be successful, what it seems to me historically is that it doesn't work in the 80s, <laughs> that something happens in the 1970s and we can, there's lots of things that happen in the 1970s and then into the 80s, which forestalls the possibility of this alliance, which has only become alive again in maybe the last 20 years. And so my question would be, what about that intervening period sort of forestalled this alliance? Why, why did the PMC end up becoming yuppies instead of becoming, as they increasingly do today, at least the bottom strata of the PMC DSA members? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good and challenging question, to which I don't know that we have the super clear answer exactly. I mean, what the Ehrenreich, what Barbara Ehrenreich really in particular, I think would, would have said, was that there's this kind of set of defeats that occur from the late 60s through the 70s to this project of a radicalized PMC as it's politically separated from the, the working class as a whole. And this becomes kind of exploited by the right in the form of the phenomena of like blue collar conservatism that become very politically prominent over the course of the 1970s, right? Working class support for Wallace, not just in the South. Hard hats for Nixon. Hard hats for Nixon. The, the AFL-CIO doesn't endorse McGovern in 72. 
although important to say, lots of individual unions, including the UAW, did endorse McGovern. But mm. anyway, and, you know, all the way down then to uh, Reagan, right? And Reagan's kind of sweeping through blue collar America in 1980 and 1984. And, you know, so at a kind of electoral level, I think that puts the nail in the coffin of the new left as a kind of live possibility of something that could transcend this particular social origin and mobilize a broader section of society. But does that have something to do with what's happening with the PMC? Because I sort of read Fear of Falling as kind of an account of the way in which instead of radicalizing the PMC, you know, sort of like is renewed in its commitment to its role as a a sort of disciplinary extension of, of class control. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what she's arguing in Fear of Falling. And if I remember right, she doesn't really kind of like resort to the concept of neoliberalism or something like that. But I think basically what she would have said if she were here would be having kind of seen off the main political challenge of, and, you know, developed this kind of response instead of, you know, the neoliberal turn. Neoliberalism has something to offer to professionals, right? We're going to create a whole new set of possible kind of comforts and points of alignment between you and the places where you work. Mm-hmm. And, or, you know, the careers that you might imagine you might have or the value of your homes or all kinds of things that drag the PMC to, to the right, right. And that this also, you know, is eventually manifest in electoral politics in the form of like the new Democrats in, in a variety of ways. Right. Yeah. You know, one thing that really jumped out at me reading Fear of Falling, which was published in 1989, was the stuff very early in the book on the the quote unquote rediscovery of poverty. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it, you, you almost get the sense, and this will be of interest to our listeners especially, I think, you almost get the sense that the way poverty upon its rediscovery was pathologized in the 60s, you know, a culture of poverty, those kinds of arguments and lines came home to roost in the Reagan years. Like you couldn't give poor people or workers money because they'd blow it. You know, they couldn't delay gratification. You know, like all these stereotypes and tropes about poor people they were considered to be the cause of poverty rather than maybe the consequence. And if that's drilled into people's heads for a few decades, it eventually seemed to come home to roost then in the 80s with Reagan and the way he talked about poor people and workers. Yeah, and it's easy to see how that does kind of status distinction work, right, for middle class people. Uh-huh. Right. That's what their fear of falling into. Yes. Exactly. Those kinds of pathologies, supposedly. Right. In preparing for this, I was rereading some short piece Aaron Reich had written that is about welfare it opens with her describing how much money Nancy Reagan's inauguration outfit cost versus how much her <laughs> friend who's on welfare gets per year. And she kind of lays out, in the way she always does, the trap that this welfare recipient gets that she says, my friend who I'm not going to name until public opinion changes is a cheat. And she describes the way she works off the you know, under the table for money because that's what she needs to do because welfare is not enough. And you know, it sort of concludes with what if she could get, you know, the minimum amount she needed to survive so she didn't have to cheat on welfare, which would be approximately how much Nancy Reagan's um, outfit cost. It was like $40,000 a year. But I just wanted to add on this point, the Aaron Reichs address this kind of transformation of, of where the PMC's uh, coming down as far as its two kind of contradictory impulses. So they write about that in that 2013 essay, but also Gabe's essay about the pre- professional managerial class from you know the the great era of the Warren Sanders <laughs> debates. Gabe wrote on this view: even if the PMC had not been a class before, it emerged coherently as one with the transition to neoliberalism, which appears in this analysis as the project of a two-class coalition. 
the bourgeoisie, that is owners of capital, increasingly financial assets in particular, in charge, and the PMC, the junior partner, together bringing out a political resolution to the economic and social crisis of the 70s, the worst possible scenario from the Ehrenreich's perspective. So I just want to underline that that's exactly what you guys were saying, that, yeah, um, from a mixture of the quote-unquote fear of falling, as well as certain incentives where maybe you'll become the PMC member who gets to jump ship and get really good stock options that really make you more an owner than a than a worker anymore. There are these sort of incentives there as well as, well as a gathering chasm between them and the working class, which is, mm. you know, under attack as far as it's the strength of the labor movement. Um, that sort mm-hmm. of pushes the PMC precisely in the opposite direction that the Aaron Rex hoped it would go. But can I add to that? I'm glad you brought that quote in, because Alex, because it's a one it's one that I've thought about a lot in the last few years. And like, was that analysis right or complete mm-hmm. when I, you know, tried to gloss their 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 view in that way? And I think it's missing a piece, which is that simultaneously it can be the case that you have this kind of PMC rightward political alignment, which is kind of undergirded materially by stock options or whatever it might be, right? And at the same time, at a lower level, the kind of like engines of proletarianization don't necessarily stop. Right. And we can actually understand those things potentially in relation to each other, right? Like you can easily imagine, I I think you would need to research and prove this, but I think you could easily imagine the ways that the promise of either Reaganism or probably more often like the kind of Atari Democrat new economy thing (laughs) could be politically imagined by yuppies basically as a way of shoring up Mm -hmm. the economic position, which they kind of have and are kind of still worried about losing. Right. Such that in fear of falling, and this is the thing that really blew me away when I read that book, which came out in 89, Aaron Reich identifies all of these job categories in the professional class that are already falling apart, including like adjunct professor, things that other people wouldn't pay attention to for 20 or 30 more years. But she's able to point out, look, actually, this role that you people have taken on, you you know, yuppies, as the kind of outriders for neoliberalism, it's not going to serve you well in the long term. Hmm. It's very funny because this reminds me of a pamphlet I bring up a lot that I, I wrote about once from 1932, when the bottom had had really fallen out on the the very newest kind of uh, earliest form of the PMC, right, post-depression. And the Communist Party puts out this pamphlet with a great title. It says, um, Culture and the Crisis, an appeal to the writers, artists, teachers, physicians, <laughs> engineers, scientists, and other professional workers of America. And they talk about there's huh. teachers in the bread lines, engineers patching the sheet iron sheds of the Hoovervilles. Um, right. you, have a, you have a choice between serving either as the cultural lieutenants of the capitalist class or as allies and fellow travelers of the working class. And so it's exactly Aaron Reich's trying to play this role almost <laughs> before the bottom falls out in the way it had when that pamphlet was written and saying right. that's exactly what's going to happen. We're just like mm-hmm. the skilled workers of prior eras and, and we're going to be proletarianized. And here's sort of the I mean, this is part of the, the strength of Aaron Reich's method that, you know, Gabe mentioned he's getting, she has thousands of workers writing to her. She's really of a milieu where she's going out and seeing individual people and asking them, what it, what does it look like at your job? And so she can see things, I think, before they come to the attention of other people because she's really taking seriously what people in those classes are experiencing. Right. That's a really interesting point, Alex, and maybe leads to the question I've been wanting to ask for the last few moments, which is that, you know, the subtitle to Fear of Falling is The Inner Life of the Middle Class. And maybe we could substitute for that the inner life of the PMC. And, you know, I think one of the really great things of Ehrenreich's writing is that imaginative world that 
you know, relations not mm. between people and an object, but between people even, you know, she's so good on that. But I think that leads to some of the, you know, the fact that she could say the inner life of the middle class and kind of describe it, even if it doesn't describe, you know, every single middle class person, describe this kind of imaginative world. That seems to play a lot into the critiques on the left of the PMC, right? right. Kind of like the, the, the cultural condescension from PMC people <laughs> toward workers. Barbara even, you know, describes, I think Alex, even in your interview with her, a meeting of a bunch of different kinds of people at a, at a home and there was, uh, you know, workers and like an adjunct professor and the adjunct professor talks down to people, those kinds of things. Maybe does the way... Aaron Wright kind of approached these matters. And, and again, by describing the, the kind of imaginative world, how much does that get us toward how the concept of the PMC has been misused, including by some on the left? Or what made it vulnerable to misuse, too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Erin Wright herself, I mean, she is someone who reasons with contradiction. That's sort of how she thinks about the world. Right. That contradiction extends to the level of the individual. And that's through all of her work. I mean, you know, she's always kind of questioning, like, who is the I who's really writing this? Who is the I who yes. is really speaking? You know, she describes thought as a kind of process of conflict between different neuronal patterns at various times in her work. Yes. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's no integral human that is a kind of agent. And so contradictions play out within us for that reason. And that, you know, I think is a hard conclusion to resist if you're a Marxist. Why would, why would the individual be the level where contradiction wouldn't happen? Right. But uh, what that means is she then says, okay, so the particular contradiction that we've been talking about that afflicts this class, of course, also is going to happen individually for all of its members, right? As they have to figure out which of the sides of themselves, the side that, you know, feeds in some ways, obviously, on status or prestige or power or just material security. And, you know, who would deny that some of you want some or all of those things, right, from within that class? Right. And the side of themselves that, you know, thinks their work actually matters for non-commercial reasons or chafes at the kind of directives that they get from above or is worried about their future career or whatever. The, the conflict between those sides is an inner conflict, right? It's not just like a, it's material, but it's material in a way that doesn't force you into a single rational option. It necessarily implicates you in questions about who you are and what you want and who you want to be. And I think that's all through her work. It's kind of, she was raising yes. that question. She's calling that question for middle-class people. But I think at some level, it's a hard question for people to answer and they don't like being asked. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yes. yeah. you know, that's because I think like at a, at a, a kind of first cut, that's because in the PMC, which I am certainly, you know, paid up member of, we all are always negotiating these little moral compromises every day, right? Like I work at the University of Chicago. Like what kind of institution is that, right? right, right. Um, what does it mean that I do this job? And so I have to think all the time about, well, what makes it okay for me to do this job? What about this job is not okay? And how do I deal with that? And that's not to say I have settled answers to those things, but I think we're all doing that. And, you know, you might not like someone kind of jabbing their finger in that. Right. Here's maybe a way to get further into the kind of ideological compulsions of some of the people that misappropriate her concepts. It seems to me that she's very alive to how uncomfortable and ambivalent that kind of process is, that process of self-interrogation. 
I mean, it's constantly the case that she sort of notes that a lot of what produces this sort of ideological certainty on the part of members of the PMC is this, well, fear of falling, this kind of proximity to something, to some kind of way of being that it ignites this anxious feeling in the person who experiences it. I mean, even in fear of falling, even as we were describing this process as the PMC coming to see the poor as a sort of moral problem, she writes that what the middle class even of the 60s and 70s, was seeing in the poor was what the middle class feared most in itself, a softening of character, a lack yes. of firm internal yes. values. And that there's always this repeating of the, you know, what Freudians would call the kind of narcissism of small differences, that whatever, whoever is closest to you or sort of you, could ima- you can almost imagine yourself there is what ignites the most ambivalence. I think that that is so important for how we conceive of this part of, her, of the question for her. You know, it's funny because in in labor organizing in white collar workplaces, one of the first objections or obstacles that you have to overcome is when people say, but I don't need a union because I'm not a worker, right? What would it mean if I felt that there was no way I could individually resolve the problems in my workplace? Right. And in fact, I did just need what other people that I kind of think of as below me need, which is a collective organization through which we can, you know, negotiate. And that is often a conversation that has to take a long time. You know, it can be put as you're a worker too, which, you know, Aaron Reich would say is a little bit simplistic, but that's often how it goes, right? Is how do you come to see yourself in that position? And I think, you know, a lot of people now who have unionized end up getting there not by starting with an ideological argument about you being a worker or not, um, but rather laying out the concrete problems at a workplace and finding that the PMC itself does share certain relationships to the capitalist class or the managerial class at its corporation or workplace or state agency um, that any other worker has. And that's how you kind of wind up at a place where you get white collar unions. But it's this huge obstacle. I've dealt with it myself all the time. I'm not like that. That's not me. Yeah. And this is, of course, something precisely that the the manager then takes up and says, yes, you're not a worker. You guys are special. And in fact, we can resolve this one-on-one as equals yeah. because we're, you know, we're smart, right? Mm-hmm. We, I get that miners or, or fast food workers would need a union, but you and I can sit down as, as intelligent college educated people. And so there's a really powerful tool. You see that contradictory position play out all the time in these organizing drives right. where you can either take the side of the capitalist class and you can sort of say, you know what? Yeah. My, my manager is also my buddy. And we don't need a union or you can say, actually, these problems in the workplace, whether they're sexual harassment or unequal pay, so on and so forth, actually can't be resolved at an individual level, which means that my individuality actually is in certain ways not really the core of what's important here. It's actually a mm. more collective problem. But I mean, the Ehrenreich say this in their 2013 essay where they're talking about like what has happened since ne- neoliberalism where the bottom has fallen out for a lot of these industries. And those of us who have college and higher degrees have proved to be no more indispensable as a group to the American capitalist enterprise than those who hone their skills on assembly lines or in warehouses or foundries. Right. The debt-ridden, unemployed, and underemployed college graduates, the revenue-starved teachers, blah, 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 all face the same kind of situation that confronted skilled craft workers in the early 20th century. And this, I think, again, it gets to that sort of difficulty of seeing yourself um, in a way different than you've sort of been raised and educated to see yourself for this class. And that, I think, does lead to some of this really sort of like projection or kind of like just deep resistance to this idea what if you what you have to say isn't that 
unique or special really for your <laughs> position that's going to determine what you say in certain ways. Or what if it is very specific, but but nonetheless, you have to look at it closely. Right, that the fo- there are forces acting upon you and, and that they're yes. bringing you down and actually degrading the value that you were taught you had. This actually does kind of explain to a great degree what, Gabe, you've described this sort of glass house problem of the leftists who throw the term PMC around as a as an insult, which is that they're trying to resolve the contradiction by disavowing their proximity or their actual kind of like total coterminousness with this class position. And that there is a, there's such a strong impulse in people to resolve a sort of discomforting, contradictory class position by disavowal instead of in what way am I implicated? Like, look, for example, like we, we've been sort of alluding to this way of talking about the PMC as a kind of like set of cultural norms that are static, that are objectionable, that actually, in fact, Ehrenreich is very good at defining in a particular historical moment. But someone like Catherine Liu, who appropriates the concept of the PMC in a, a super ham-fisted way, relies on in order not to encounter the ways in which she herself is, of course, you know, subject to these really discomforting sort of unpersoning forces of economic and social life. Right. I mean, I think to start to answer this question, I want to pick up where Alex left off, because I think one phenomenon that you get that she alluded to in her answer in a, let's say, university context where both she and I, you know, started out organizing you do get these people, it's a very common phenomenon, who in one way or another wanted to distinguish themselves from the kind of people who they think should have a union, for example, right? And that might have a kind of contempt or disgust on its surface, but it also can look like there's a kind of left version of that, right? Which is like, unions are for real workers and I love them. And, you know, I support the workers who clean my office and their struggles, but don't don't ask me to be part of that. Well, I don't want to take any attention away right, from exactly, their exactly. struggle. Well, I, that, that would be a kind of cultural appropriation. Except you really hear exactly that all the time. Yeah, you hear it all the time. <laughs> and, you know, it was amazing for me because I, I, I've told you guys this before, but, you know, the union I was part of in grad school was very organizationally integrated with all the other workers' unions on campus. And so I would say, like, the like union of the people who clean your office are paying for me to be here to tell you to join the union. And they get paid way better than you do because they have a union. Um, you know, I think it's a kind of instructive thing to think about because what it tells us is that there is both a negative and a positive valence to the form of projection of the working class other that the yes. kind of middle class mm-hmm. psyche can give rise to. But oh, it's the same yes. mechanism either way. And, you know, in fact, I think there's a kind of a Marxist or pseudo-Marxist version of that that can even exist, which is sort of what you were alluding to with Lou, I think. You know, I mean, Lou would say, of course, I'm in the PMC. She said that many times, but it doesn't mean anything for her argument to acknowledge that. And so if you don't interrogate your own position, you are then able to kind of generate this kind of imaginary static relationship between the classes, which is, as Alex has often joked, and Alex, I'm going to st- steal your joke right now. Like, have you ever noticed that the PMC drives like this, but the working class drives like that? Um, <laughs> you know, I think that is a product of disengagement from working class people or from, you know, class struggle in some form, right? Like you wind up kind of turning the working class as a kind of imaginary object, a fetish object 
into a tool with which to bash your colleagues who you don't like. Right. They, they say annoying stuff in meetings, but it's not actually, there's no actual set of relationships among these people in that conception. Right. I mean, I would find that disagreeable in any form, but it would be whatever people are allowed to have different positions. I get why there's different ways of understanding what classes are and whether this middle thing is a class or not, you know, reasonable people can disagree about that. What drives me nuts about this conversation is the way that Aaron Reich is conscripted and the idea is conscripted into it because there are other conceptual tools you could use to make this argument. Like, for example, you could say, actually, they were right to call it the petite bourgeoisie. Mm. And that would be totally conceptually coherent. I would think it's wrong, but it would be coherent. But to take Aaron Reich's concept of the PMC, which has fundamental to it as an idea, the kind of two-way contradiction, and then use it to argue that the PMC is kind of seamlessly integrated into the kind of apparatus of control and rule and doesn't have any internal contradiction such that you don't yourself as a member of it have to think about your own position right. and can just refer to a kind of imaginary working class out there. That is to destroy the concept. Right. And I think that's what's psychologically interesting about it is that we see these kind of misappropriations of it as simultaneously appropriating and nullifying it <laughs> as a way of like not answering her challenge. Right. You know, one of the, I think, distinctive aspects of the experience of reading Aaron Reich's books and essays, but I, I again, I'm, I'm thinking mostly of Fear of Falling, which I read in preparation for this, is the sense of discomfort reading it or feeling like you do have to interrogate yourself. Right. You know, you're being called out. Called in, maybe, we might say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a really interesting experience, actually, reading her. And it wasn't entirely pleasant. <laughs> you know, Gabe, you were talking about talking, you know, thinking through your job in a certain way. I think that that is the product of reading her. And I understand why there'd be resistance to kind of that challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think all of her writing is doing that really deliberately. And it has been mm -hmm. almost from the very beginning. I mean, certainly from the 70s yeah. at some point. And she, I, you know, she embeds it in, as Alex was saying at the top of the show, like, she embeds it in the kind of formal structure of her work. Like, why is she a character in Nickel and Dimed, right? Why is it not just re like reported kind of profiles of working class people? Well, she's there, so you can follow along with her, right? Mm -hmm. And all throughout the book, if you read it closely, she's doing this little move again and again and again, where she invites you into her shoes as a middle class person out of place, so that you can then see the way that you are kind of implicated. Yes. Uh, my, my favorite scene in the book, which I... I summarized in the obituary I wrote is when she's working for a, a, like a maid service, like a domestic cleaning company. And she has this young coworker named Holly who is pregnant and kind of visibly unwell. And, you know, Barbara is kind of stressed about her. And then Holly snaps something in her ankle. She makes a false move and someone hurts her ankle on the job. And Aaron Reich, as she does at all of these jobs, says like, we should go on strike. <laughs> and as it happens at all of these jobs, like her coworkers are like, no, 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 we can't do that. And that, I think that's also very interesting because that's Aaron Reich as the, like, the alternate Aaron Reich who has industrialized herself, like Trotskyists and Maoists in the 70s, right? She's taking this job and there she is saying, let's fight back. And she gets nowhere. And you know, in this case, the coworkers say, our boss needs us. What would he do if we, did, if we didn't show up? And in this moment, she fantasizes about saying, listen, I have a PhD. I know what's going on here. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that some version of that thought crossed her mind. But what she's doing there is this thing that you're talking about, Matt, of like pointing at you, the reader, and saying, oh, look where you've come now. What do you think this means for you? Right? Don't forget who you are compared to uh -huh. this. 
And, you know, they then have this further exchange where instead of saying that, she says, oh, he'll take any, the boss will take anyone who can manage to show up sober at 7.30 a.m. And Holly, <laughs> Holly says, no, we had to pass a test to get this job. Barbara then says, the test is bullshit. Anyone can pass that test. And immediately realizes how insulting she is. She's being, right? And nonetheless, she decides she has to kind of go fight with this boss anyway, just on her own, on behalf of Holly, uh, even though it's going to infuriate all her coworkers further. <laughs> and she wins Holly a day off with pay. But, you know, I think it's a really instructive moment because she's done this move where she is never allowing you to forget yourself as you read her. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. There she is as your stand-in. And she's showing all of the ways as your stand-in that she can't bring justice to this world, right? You know, the kind of pretense of being a worker and kind of like dipping into this, this place is not enough, actually, to transform it. You know, this might be uh, a time to ask a question uh, to both of you, but Gabe, it, it is a line from your N plus one obituaries tribute remembrance that I wanted you to just unpack some for listeners. Gabe, you write this. Another way of understanding Aaron Reich's achievement then is to grasp that she reworked socialist politics around a feminist core so thoroughly that they cannot be separated again, although some still try. That really stood out to me, and I and just uh, even some of the anecdotes you were just showing made me think of it. What were you uh, driving at there? I mean, I think that first of all, it's key to her own formation, as Alex was discussing earlier. Uh -huh. uh, I, I say elsewhere in the piece, and I think this is true. There's only one conceptual step from her time in the kind of women's health movement and her writing on the the themes of reproductive justice and reproductive health to the PMC, because they're both about. <laughs> who operates the kind of machinery of expert social control. So, you know, one, I think just genealogically, feminism is really important to understanding her. But I think beyond that, she is really a product of that kind of amazing moment of women's liberation at the end of the 60s, going into the 70s, when women and a handful of men, but largely women, were engaged in the question of trying to rethink themselves and their lives and their choices and, you know, what those things kind of summed up to, both for the individual and for society as a whole. And, you know, that's like what the kind of strategic approach of consciousness raising was about, right? Was like to question yourself, question, what did it mean that my father and my mother related to each other this way? What does it mean that I relate to my husband or my boyfriend this way? Why am I doing that? Do I want to do something else? I mean, that's like, you know, the thing that we often gloss as like the personal is political, right? But there's, there's a kind of real insight in that about how to think about contradiction in politics generally, right? Which is that it happens not just out there, but it happens for you. It happens as something that imposes choices on you. It happens as something that imposes choices on everyone in some form, right? It's not like working class people are without choices about how to behave politically or how to organize their lives, although their choices are more constrained. But I think, you know, from that kind of initial feminist place, you can kind of start to think about a politics of contradiction in which people create themselves or recreate themselves through solidarity. Yeah, that uh, line I quoted from you, Gabe, comes near the end of your piece, but it kind of is the payoff to what you call earlier, right at the start of the piece, a kind of tacit working existentialism. Yeah, I don't know that Erin Reich ever identified herself this way. No, no, no. I just like that line. And I think it kind of, uh, it was a good start to the essay because I think it helped me understand actually some of what you got at uh, later in the piece. Yeah, I not even really thought of her in those terms until I set out to write this obituary. And then I was trying to, you know, put a name to this quality of her writing that we've been talking about. And, you know, the way that she 
demands that you take responsibility for yourself. Yes. And not just once, but again and again and again, and look at what you're implicated in constantly as a way of being a political subject. I mean, that's very close to the core of what existentialism is about. And of course, existentialism was another huge line of influence on the new left. I just wanted to add to what we were talking about here. You know, it's like, I think Gabe says this in the obituary. It's very humanistic, right? Barbara's approach, you know, she's concerned about atomization, alienation, and she's not just concerned about it, but it's like the core of not only her structural and formal approach, but also say the PMC analysis, right? Is that you have to care about not just wage and hour issues or workplace issues, but also health and education and art and music. And the housewife who, in a more mechanical, restrictive understanding, you would say, oh, well, she doesn't work for a living. She's not the working class. Barb would say, you know, if we have this more kind of profound understanding of things, she's actually at the very heart of the class, I think is what she says about a housewife, raising children, holding together families, maintaining the whole social networks that Barbara shows and again and again in her work actually the very key of how the working class can survive and reproduce themselves. They're being kept below what would actually reproduce them at this point. And so it, they rely on one another and all sorts of kind of like relationships to keep going. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would have anything to add beyond what Gabe said, but I just think the sort of baseline humanistic, almost romantic sense Barbara has really does harken back to both like Braberman and even E.P. Thompson, you know, I think she has a quote, maybe in that first Radical America essay about the PMC. She does. Yeah, with E.P. Thompson, we see class as having meaning only as a relationship. The notion of class entails the notion of historical relationships. Yes. It's a fluency which evades analysis if we attempt to stop it dead at any given moment and atomize its structure. Goes on and on and then says, you know, moreover, we cannot have two distinct classes, each with an independent being, and then bring them into relationships with each other. We cannot have love without lovers, nor deference without squires and laborers. And so I think this sort of starting at the core of an individual is just completely central to Barbara's experience and being a woman herself, especially in the women's health movement. Um, there's no way to jettison this understanding of how structures of domination that exist between men and women would then have a material uh, kind of basis and also repercussions for what working class organizing looks like, what what sort of the relationships between the PMC and the working class look like, and on and on. Yeah, I agree with Gabe that you totally can't separate those things at all for Barbara. There's a part of me that wants to ask the final question about Compact Magazine, because as we kind of like talked about when we decided to do this conversation, Catherine Liu, who we've sort of identified as a misappropriator, a kind of symptomatic misappropriator of Aaron Reich's concept of the PMC, then wrote this very stupid, insipid obit of sorts for what our listeners are very familiar with as the kind of new far-right, self-understood laborist publication compact. But I also kind of feel like if people are interested in what's wrong with all that, that they could listen to our previous episode with Gabe Wynette, where <laughs> he does a really, really kind of yeoman's work kind of explaining why it's all bullshit. Instead, what I'm going to ask about is something that I think is much more kosher to what we've been talking about immediately before this, <laughs> which is there's this incredible line from Fear of Falling where she's sort of describing, you know, a solution when it comes to middle-class consciousness and its relationship to work. She writes, there's one thing that should not be scarce, you know, despite the reality of a scarcity 
economy, you know, and maybe you could especially say that in the austerity years of the 1980s, there is one thing that should not be scarce. That should, in fact, increase, and that is good and pleasurable and decent work, the work of caring, healing, building, teaching, planning, learning, which obviously reminds us of a lot of our of our impulses, I imagine, and the way we think about her work. Um, something that I thought was incredibly funny and, again, symptomatic is that I happened to read a review of Fear of Falling that was written by David Reef in the LA Times when it came out. David Reef, who is now a, a compact contributor, and he said about this passage, from someone as fiercely lucid and realistic about the world as it exists and whose descriptions of the middle class predicament are so unerringly right, this romanticism about human possibility comes as a letdown. The world, as I suspect she knows perfectly well, is a tragic place, not only because of the deformations imposed by elites, but by its very nature. You know, like the, the profound anxiety he felt reading that line in 1989 and feeling that he needed to, despite having written a positive review of the book, say, oh, no, 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 no. The horizon of possibility cannot be a decent work that re-articulates the kind of ethos of the PMC, which has within it this kind of idea of caring, healing, building, teaching, planning, and learning as emancipatory. That is the thing I must disavow at the end of my review of this book, I think is, uh, is, is profoundly telling. I mean, you know, there, David Reef is not really on the left, but obviously, and I don't think ever has been, but I think there are voices, including on the left, which adopt this kind of tragic posture, seemingly out of desire. And I don't really know how else to understand it. Like, you know, from my perspective, right, you know, on the left, as a Marxist, we have a kind of theory of historical dynamism and change and of how new possibilities are always arising. And that's like, more than anything else, that's what Marxism is, is like a theory of how in the capitalist mode of production, forces of antagonism always arise such that something new can always be born. It's not always being born, right? But there, like that, the, that process of dynamic antagonism never ceases. And so then you can always kind of think about how to get from where you are right now to somewhere else. It's not easy. It's, you can't just take one jump, but you can always kind of engage in that form of analysis. And that's what the Ehrenreichs were doing in the 1970s with the, the PMC essays. And, you know, I don't think that you can resolve the question of is history fundamentally tragic or does novelty occur, right? Like that's a kind of like deep philosophical <laughs> question. That, you know, you just like each person has to choose which way they want to think about it. But it bums me out that people really like there are so many people who really badly want the answer to be nothing can ever happen. Mm -hmm. And even people on the left, which I think is fair to say, they're like who devote all of their energy including some of the people I think of as misappropriators of Ehrenreich, seem to devote all of their energy to pointing out why every new development is actually an old development that can't go anywhere and why no new possibilities can ever really emerge. Because at that point, actually, what you're doing, it seems to me, is feeding whatever desire for negativity you, you know, <laughs> develop for yourself. Right. So you know, that's the thing I ultimately love most about Ehrenreich is the way that her humanism and her, what I called her existentialism are devices for identifying the possibility of newness, of becoming new, and of history becoming new with that, which seems to me like a way of being alive rather than dead. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of Mike Davis, something he said recently, you know, now that the news has come out that he's not doing well and he's been getting a lot of interviews. And he said something like, I'm often asked, you know, what gives you hope? And he says, you know, that's not the right question. One doesn't need hope necessarily to keep going. And yet I've seen extraordinary courage and new things I never could have predicted by ordinary people that would just make it impossible to pretend that I know what's coming next. And I feel, I feel that way similarly, you know, there is this sort of urge among some on the left to sort of be the like hard headed, like realist guy who knows everything. (laughs) Um, And I think most clearly of, you know, what I've seen happen with with the workers who organize at Amazon, who are just trying, they are very clearly the products of this dynamic revolution that capitalist relations produce, where there's a completely sort of, it's unlike any organizing I've seen before and it's joyful and it's, you know, it's fun um, and it's also very intense and and it's producing kind of new formations that no one predicted. And so I think there's a humility that comes from a willingness to keep your eyes open to the concrete conditions of the world and the people around you that Aaron Reich very much has, that Mike Davis, of course, also has. And it sort of makes it impossible not to take this this all embracing what Reef, I guess, calls romanticism towards the world, where there's this quote that Gabe has in his obituary, where she's saying, you know, class struggle occurs in every arena where the interests of classes conflict. That includes education, health, art, music, etc. We aim to transform not only the ownership of the means of production, but the totality of social existence. And if you sort of are looking at the real world and seeing how a wage and hour struggle, say, at the shop floor, also then transforms the relations between people and the sense of possibilities and all sorts of things that might be seen as romantic or beyond the bounds of a union struggle. You know those things kind of go together and that there's Mm. no way one can restrict those struggles um, to sort of narrow bounds um, when it comes to how they Mm. affect real people. And so I think there's this just, Erin Reich was so close to the world that she just saw that those things flow over um, and that one can't predict or sort of have a have a narrowness to one sense of the possibilities or desires uh, for a future. That was a lovely line, Alex, close to the world. I really like that. I was going to read the quote from her introduction to male fantasies, which I Please think is, is on this theme. So Aaron Reich wrote the introduction for the English language version of Klaus Tevelet's book, Male Fantasies, which is a study of the kind of ideological origins of Nazism in gendered male violence, you know, the kind of fantasy versions of male violence and the actual violence that accompanies it. So Aaron Reich wrote this introduction, and she concludes this introduction by saying that you should pay attention to yourself as you're reading this, to how you're responding to what you're reading, and you're going to be reading about all this horrible, fascist male violence. But, you know, as always, she's saying pay attention to yourself as you read. But then she says, at some moments in the book, something is going to switch for you. And this is the quote. The dams break, curiosity swims upstream and turns around, surprising itself. Desire streams forth through the channels of the imagination. Barriers between women and men, the high and the low, crumble in the face of this new energy. This is what the fascist held himself in horror of, and what he saw in communism, in female sexuality, a joyous commingling as disorderly as life. In this fantasy, the body expands and it senses its imaginative reach to fill the earth. And we are at last able to rejoice in the softness and the permeability of the world around us rather than holding ourselves back in lonely dread. This is the fantasy that makes us, both men and women, human, and makes us sometimes revolutionaries in the cause of life. I think that's it 
like exactly for her. That's it's funny because it's not really her, it's you know an introduction to someone else's book, but you know the kind of the permeability that we've been talking about, the sense that you know all of us are made of lots of different things, and that that disorder is is a source of meaning and pleasure and potentially power, as opposed to something to be afraid of. Has really deep feminist roots and new left roots, but her real talent was trying to kind of see and then to show what that actually looks like for ordinary mm. people living their lives. It's such a beautiful line, revolutionaries in the cause of life. I think maybe we should give Barbara the last word. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so, so much for uh, sharing your insights and talking about this extraordinary woman who uh, is irreplaceable. Thanks, guys, for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you both so much again. Bye. Bye-bye.